Amen, amen. How we doing, church? Good, good. You guys can take a seat. Who's glad they came to church this morning? Amen. It's good to be all together as one body united under the name of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 this morning. We're going to consider the first 12 verses, and we're actually in between sermon series. We just finished, if you're new here, we just finished a family series that we spent six weeks on last weekend. Evan preached for us, and he's away on a, a, a celebrating a friend's wedding this weekend. Uh, but then next week, we're starting a brand new series out of 1 Samuel. And so be back next Sunday. We're going to spend the whole summer walking through the book of 1 Samuel I'm jacked up for it, and so just be here. It's going to be awesome. But as for today, what I want to do is sometimes we get this opportunity to have a standalone message, and that's what we have today. It's a standalone message, which means it's not part of a series, which means I got the ability to go wherever I want to go. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to simply let you in a little bit into what the Lord's been doing in my life, all right? Right now, we have a church-wide reading plan where we're reading through the New Testament in an entire year, and right now, we're, we're nestled in the book of Mark. And so that's the reason we're in Mark chapter 2 today, and it's one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. But I want to start this morning with a question. And the question is, what would you do if you found yourself in a desperate situation? I mean, a desperate situation, but then you knew that you were going to have one opportunity, or you were going to find one chance to help someone who was in need. In other words, what would you do if your mom or your dad, or maybe a spouse, got diagnosed with something that was terrible. But then you knew that there was going to be an opportunity to get them the help that they needed. What would you do if, God forbid, one of your kids ended up having a hard time with something, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, mental, whatever it may be, and you found yourself in a desperate situation? What would you do? Well, the question is, or the answer is, if you love them, and you're going to do whatever it takes to get them the help they need. Amen? You're going to do whatever it takes. Church, that's the kind of mindset, listen to me, that's the kind of mindset you got to bring into Mark chapter 2 today. The kind of mindset that says, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Because this morning, we're going to read a story about four friends who find themselves, in fact, in this desperate situation. But they realize that there is a person out there that if they can just simply get their friend in front of that person, then they're going to be able to help and meet the need that is in front of them. And so let's do this. Let's dive in. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. If you don't have your copy of the text this morning, you can follow along on the screens and we'll pick it up right there in verse 1. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation this morning. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon, the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there, were, there was no more room, not even outside the door. And so Jesus is staying at this particular house. Some people think that it's Peter's mother-in-law's house, but it doesn't tell us specifically. And so many people are coming in to hear him preach that there was no more room inside or outside the house. And so essentially, they get to the place where they're in this overflow seating. In today's culture, we look at Jesus and say, hey, bro, it's time to start a second service, right? They just don't have any more room left in the place. The place is packed out. Keep going, verse 2. It says, while he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Verse 4, they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Let's stop right there. Can you see what's happening? 
Can you get the picture of the scene on that day? Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to paint us a picture of what it must have been like in that moment from all kinds of different views, okay? And so come with me here. Here's what it looks like. You've got this packed house, all right? People are flowing literally outside of the door. There's no more room. And then all of a sudden, as verse 3 says, these four men arrive. We don't know who they are. We don't know their names necessarily. But they show up, and they're carrying this paralyzed friend on the mat. And when they arrive, listen, they had every intention inside of them to get their friend to Jesus. That's why they came. But the problem was they couldn't get him through the crowd. You see, the crowd was kind of bucking up and saying, we're not letting you in. We want to hear Jesus ourselves. And so what are they going to do is the question. How are they going to get their friend inside to Jesus? Well, when the pushing and the prodding didn't work, they had to get creative. And so what do they decide to do? They decide to dig a hole in the roof of a person's house. Now, let's pause for a second. Have you ever really thought about this particular situation? Have you ever thought about what the conversation must have been like between those four friends on that day? I mean, just think about it for a second. They roll in and they have full intentions on getting this guy to Jesus. And then all of a sudden they stop because they can't get inside the house. And I just picture the first guy saying, man, we got to do whatever it takes, guys. We got to get him inside. What are we going to do? And then the second guy's like, bro, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go up on the roof. To which the third guy's like, a lot of, a lot of good that's going to do, bro. How are we going to get... Jesus is inside. What good is it could be if we go upstairs and just hang out on the roof? To which the second guy's like, no, 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 hear me out. We're going to go up on the roof, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a shovel or something. I don't know what they took, but we're going to unroof the roof, right? In other words, we're going to start digging, and we're going to dig a hole in the roof. To which the first guy comes back and says, you can't just dig a hole through a roof of a stranger's house that we don't even know. I don't know if they knew him or not, but I don't think they knew him, right? You can't just do that. To which the second guy's like... Why not? What do we got to lose? We want to get this guy to Jesus, right? Tell me, is there another way? And I just picture the four guys kind of pausing for a second, looking at each other, investigating the situation, thinking, is there any other way we can get there, this guy to Jesus? And then I picture this long pause between them. And finally, the fourth guy looks at me and says, guys, I don't think we have a better option. We want to get him to Jesus, don't we? And they're all like, yeah. We do. He said, well, listen, then we've got to do whatever it takes. And if the roof is the only way that we can get our friend to Jesus, then by golly, I'm in. Let's do it. Let's go up on the roof. And they're all like, yeah, let's get him. And so they all bust up the roof. They go up the stairs. They hang out on the roof. They start digging. Now, let's shift our focus. So we got the four guys up on the roof. Now, picture for a minute this. Picture you are inside the house now for a moment, Okay. Imagine you're inside, and you're just listening to Jesus. He's preaching awesome, because that's what Jesus always does. He always preaches awesome. And so he's preaching this awesome, dynamic sermon. He's talking about things that are holy and righteous, and everybody's mind's being blown. And then all of a sudden, while you're sitting there, you start hearing footsteps on the roof above you. All right, now imagine right now. We're sitting in here right now, and we're listening. Imagine when I pause, and there you just hear footsteps above us. You probably start to wonder what's going on up there, right? And then all of a sudden, you hear this odd noise. And dirt starts falling on your head. Maybe you're sitting in here right now. You hear that people walking around, and all of a sudden a ceiling tile falls and hits one of you on the head. You're probably going to be looking around thinking, what is going on? And so that's exactly what happened. Dirt starts to fall. More dirt starts to fall. And you look around, and it's not just falling on you. It's falling on everybody else. In fact, Jesus is up there probably dodging dirt as it's falling down in front of him too. And then all of a sudden what happens is the sun starts to peek through. Picture the sun, just a beam of sunshine peeking through on that day. And the hole in that roof just keeps getting bigger 
and bigger and bigger as they're digging more and more and more as the owner of the house is screaming louder and louder and louder, right? Get off my roof. That's what they're saying. And so this is what's happening. And then finally, the demolition stops. Picture a hole big enough to fit a person through. And I picture everyone in the room all of a sudden just getting silent. And they're like, what is going to happen next? Just like it is right now. And what happens next is pretty wild. Because for all you Aladdin fans out there, all of a sudden this magic carpet just appears. Right? And it just becomes a whole new world for every single person in that place on that day. But instead of Aladdin and Jasmine and little Abu falling from the ceiling, that's not exactly what happened. What happens is there's this paralyzed man that is just slowly lowered down on this mat. And he's lowered down little by little, probably with a rope tied around every corner of his mat, slowly lowered down with complete room in silence. And he's placed right there at the feet of Jesus. And at that moment, I just pictured Jesus looking down at that paralyzed man, looking up at those friends. And you know those friends are just up on the roof with this big, goofy smile on their face, right? They're just like, they're nervous, but they're excited. They got faith, and they're just like, go get them, Jesus, right? They just don't even know what to think. But I just pictured Jesus looking down at that man, looking up at those friends. And what verse 5 says, I love it. Verse 5 is going to say, when they saw their faith, when Jesus looked at those four, he, we don't know who there is, but imagining he's looking at those four friends, <clears throat> he's looking at that paralyzed man, and when he saw their faith, look what verse 5 says, he says to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, <laughs> In my mind, when Jesus makes this statement, I just picture the four friends on the roof thinking, cool. <laughs> that's great, Jesus. I'm glad his sins are forgiven, but that's not really why we brought him here. You see, we were thinking legs, not life. That's what they were thinking. Now, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to take care of the legs part in just a minute, okay? So don't worry about that. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus knew, watch this, he knew what this great, man's greatest need was. You know that? He knew it. Right? And his greatest need was not a new set of legs. Instead, his greatest need was for this man's sin to be forgiven so that he could one day experience eternal life and spend eternity with Jesus. Amen? I mean, what good was it going to do for this man to have two working legs if he was just going to walk right into hell with him? It was no good at all. He needed his sin to be forgiven, just as all of us in this room need our sin to be forgiven. And so if you're here this morning, and whether you're five years old and in kindergarten, or whether you're 95 years old, your greatest need is not whatever problem you're walking through right now to be fixed. Your greatest need is for your sin to be forgiven. And so Jesus takes care of that spiritual need right out of the gate. But then he turns around in verse 6, and he starts to begin to take care of that physical need. He says, but some of the teachers of, re of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Now, these verses, when you read this, they should make you a little bit nervous. All right, and here's why. Notice the text, it doesn't say that they said something out loud, does it? It never says that. It says they thought something in their hearts, which is a healthy reminder for all of us in the room that Jesus not only sees the actions we do, he not only hears the words that we say, but he actually knows every thought and desire of our hearts. And so we need to be checking ourselves on a regular basis to make sure that our thoughts and desires are always holy and righteous. 
Now, that's a sermon for another day, but back in our story, the scribes actually, in verse 7, they used the right kind of logic. Look again at verse 7. They said, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And if you think about it, they're absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. But you know what their problem was? Their problem was they weren't able to recognize that Jesus was and is the Son of God. That was their problem. They couldn't see the fact that Jesus was actually the one with all the authority and who had the ability to forgive sins. And so the scribes in this moment, they're questioning Jesus. They believed he was committing blasphemy as he was claiming to be God. But look at Jesus' response. Again, looking at verse 8. It says, why do you question this in your hearts? It says, is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? I love verse 10. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man, that's me, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and he said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Verse 12, and the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this. In other words, Jesus looks at the scribes, and he looks at everyone else watching and listening, and he says, I want you all to know something. And I want you to make sure you never forget it. I have the authority to forgive sins. In other words, I am the Son of God. I am God. And to prove that reality, here's what he said. He looked at that paralyzed man. He said, to prove that reality, I say to you, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Now, can you imagine the tension in the room during this moment? I mean, there's a lot of tension. Think about it. The scribes in this moment were tense because Jesus challenged them and said he would demonstrate that he was the Son of God. The paralyzed man was tense because he wondered if Jesus would and could actually heal him. The four friends were tense because they're exhausted from unroofing a roof, and they just really wanted this whole thing to work. The owner of the house was tense because she was trying to calculate what it was going to cost to fix a roof, right? The crowd was tense because they sensed everyone else in the room was tense. And so everybody in this moment is feeling the tension in this house. Everyone except one person. And that one person is Jesus. And you know why he wasn't tense? Because... He always has perfect peace because he is the Prince of Peace. And he looked at that paralyzed man and he said, stand, pick up your mat, and go home. And in that moment, to the amazement of the crowd crammed inside the house, to the disgust of the scribes sitting on the floor, and to the delight of the four friends who are peering down from the unroofed roof, that paralyzed man, he stood. He stood, guys. And he picked up his mat and he went home. Now, Can you imagine, get back in the story for a minute, can you imagine the four friends on the roof in that moment? I mean, they're like, woohoo, let's go, whatever you make, what's that when you're excited, right? They are pumped. They come busting down off of that roof, and I don't even think they even thought to mention uh, the the option of paying for that person's roof. They were just gone, right? They're out of here. And inside that demolished house, the rest of the people remained. And for the very first time in this story, the people who were inside the house, they spoke. And what do they say? We've never seen anything like this. Church, that paralyzed man on that day was immediately healed. And by doing so, Jesus proved his power to heal and do miracles. He proved on that day his authority to forgive sins. And listen, on that day, he proved that he truly was and is the Son of God. And so, my friends, you better believe in him today because he is a God who can do all things. Now, isn't that story amazing? 
I mean, isn't it great? I mean, amen is a great story. It's one of my favorites. But the question for us today to ask is, what do we glean from it? What do we take away from that story? In other words, where's the application? Well, there's a lot of application there that we could draw into, but for today, I really want to focus on the faith of the four friends who brought this guy to Jesus. As I was studying this week, I came across an article by a famous guy, you've probably heard of him, his name is David Platt, where he lists four characteristics of these individuals' faith. And so I want to take a little time, we don't have much time, but take a little bit of time to look at each one of these characteristics. And so think about it like this. You've got four corners of a map. You've got four characteristics of these paralyzed men. And so here's the first one. First characteristic, their faith was confident. First corner of the map, their faith was confident. Church, these four friends, they knew that Jesus could help them. They knew it. They were convinced that if they could just somehow get their friend to Jesus, then something amazing would happen. And so the question for all of us this morning is, do you and I, do we have that kind of confidence? Do we have that kind of faith? In other words, do we believe that if we can somehow get the gospel of Jesus to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, then something amazing will happen in their lives? Do we believe it? We, I got one. That's all I need. I need one person to have faith, and we can move mountains, right? And so if we truly believe that, here it is. Here it is. Then we'll do whatever it takes, you see? If we truly believe it, we'll do whatever it takes, just like those four friends in that story. Why? Because we will be confident that Jesus can change lives. He can change families. And listen to this. He can change entire communities if we have that kind of faith. And so firstly, we've got to have a faith that's confident. Number two, we've got to have a faith that's compassionate. These guys had a faith that was compassionate. Listen, these four friends, man, they love that guy on the map. There's no doubt about it. You don't go to measures like this. You don't unroof a roof for people that you don't really care much about. You just don't do it. And so praise God for these four faithful friends who saw this man in need and loved him enough, cared for him enough to do something about it. Church, may God raise us up to be individuals as well as a church that has compassionate hearts like these four individuals. May that be what we display to people. May we be a church, FCC Southwest, that sees lost people all around us. And instead of going back to life as usual, pretending that these people don't exist and that their eternal destination isn't real, may we care enough and love them enough to actually do something about it. And so we've got to have a, 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 a whatever the first one was, we've got to have a confident faith and we've got to have a compassionate faith. Number three third corner, their faith was creative, right? Their faith was creative. You know, when you think about these four guys, they're scrappy, aren't they? They're scrappy. They're resourceful. And let's, let's just be real. They're a little bit reckless. Not a little bit. They unroofed the roof, right? They're reckless. And you know what? I, I love it. I like how they're guys who are willing to push up against the fence. They're willing to do whatever it takes. I mean, nothing was going to stop them from getting to Jesus. No roof, no crowd, nothing. They were willing to do whatever it took for their friend. Church, I am praying for God to give us a creative faith, a resourceful faith, a scrappy faith, maybe even, I'll say it, a little bit of a reckless faith that says we're going to do whatever it takes to get our friends to Jesus. 
We're going to do whatever it takes. Listen, our goal is to help everyone. That's why in our vision at FCC, if you didn't know it, we say Jesus everyone because we believe that everyone should have the right to come into a relationship with Jesus. And so we're going to help everyone in the Roanoke Valley. I love how my youth pastor used to say it, to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. I'm committing myself to you to do that, and I pray that you're going to commit yourselves to doing it as well. And so we've got to have a faith that is creative. And lastly, we've got to have a faith that is contagious. Love it. A faith that is contagious. Church, the faith of these four friends, it certainly had an effect on that paralyzed man. I mean, how could it not? There's no doubt it strengthened his faith. I mean, think about it. His faith had to be encouraged when he was laying on the mat. Man, I don't know where he was, but all of a sudden, people start talking that Jesus is preaching in the house down the street. And what do his friends do? They rush to him, they pick him up, and they carry him down the street to the house of Jesus. His faith had to be encouraged during that moment. And then when they got to the house, he probably faced a little bit of discouragement, right? Because he realized we can't get into the house. And so the friend's probably a little bit discouraged, like, I'm not going to get to see Jesus. But then how encouraged must his faith have been when his friend said, no, we're going to do whatever it takes for you. And we're going to climb up on that roof and we're going to unroof the roof. Listen, when people have that kind of faith, when they have that kind of, listen to this, determination for the gospel, it's contagious. It just is. You can't help but want to be part of it. Church, I'm praying that God will give all of us a contagious faith that, watch this, believes Jesus is so good believes that he is so great and so glorious that we will live our lives in a way that will point other people to him, right? Matthew 5, 16, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Church, may that verse be true in every one of our lives. May we all display a contagious faith to the world around us. And so, with all that in mind, let me ask you a question this morning. Are you personally, individually, right now, in this moment, willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to do whatever it takes for the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, here's the reality. Write it down. If you're saved, you're sent. If you're saved, then you're sent. We are all called to bring people to Jesus. In fact, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, look at what it says. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice what the text doesn't say. The text doesn't say, but the pastors and elders will receive power when the Holy Spirit becomes on the pastors and elders. And the pastors and elders will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's not what it says. Right? Instead, this is something that all of us, if you profess and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, then this commission, this call is made on your life. We're all called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across the street and around the world. That's what this verse is saying. Now, you may be thinking in your mind, especially some of you kids in here, may be thinking, well, what in the world is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? What does that mean? Well, check this out. Here's what it means. This is a map. It's kind of hard to see from the back. Let me point out to you, Jerusalem's right here. So what does that mean? That's like your hometown. That's like the Roanoke Valley. It's where we live. We're called to proclaim Jesus in our Roanoke Valley. Judea, what is that? That's this region right here. That's like a state, right? So that's like Virginia. That's our culture that we live in. We're to take it there. Then it goes on to say Samaria. That's like the people in that day, Samaritans, they didn't really necessarily get along, okay? So that's like taking the gospel, people you don't even like, okay? Or taking the gospel to people in the next culture. And then he says to the end of the world, that's pretty obvious, right? 
end of the earth is to every single person. And so here it is. We're all called to take Jesus everywhere. It's part of our vision too. Take him everywhere based on what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That is the call in our lives. Now, I recognize that that is a huge goal, and that is a huge challenge that is laid before us. And so the question becomes in our minds, what do we do? What does this mean for us right now? Let me make it simple. Here's what this means for you. It means that you are called to identify your one more. You're called to identify your one more. Here we have a token, a coin, a statement, whatever you want to say. It's called who's your one, right? It's that one person who does not know Jesus, and you have a call in your life to identify who that one more is for you and to pray for them every single day. And here's what you're praying, very specific. You're praying that God will give you the opportunity and the desire to do whatever it takes to point them to Jesus. Church, if we as a, as a body of believers, we'll, 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 we'll see God move in an incredible way if every single one of us in here will commit to that over the next several months. If we will be really, really, really intentional as individuals in this room, God will move in this church and he will move in this community in a mighty way if we are willing to commit and say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to reach one more person for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we wrap up, what I want to do is I want to lead us in a very specific prayer time. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. And as the band comes forward, we're going to have a a time where I'm going to give you specific prayer prompts where we can start praying, one, that we will have faith just like these four individuals from this morning. But secondly, that we will be able to identify our one more and commit ourselves to doing whatever it takes to reach them for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's all bow our heads, everybody praying. Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the text that you provide us. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful demonstration of who your son Jesus really is, the son of God and the savior of all of us. And my prayer right now is that everyone in this room will look at the faith of the four individuals who picked up that mat on that day. And that we will have a confident faith, that we will have a compassionate faith and a creative faith and a contagious faith to take your name and make it famous in this Roanoke Valley. And so right now, church, every head bowed, every eye closed, I just want you to take a moment and call upon the name of the Lord. Say, Lord, identify someone for me in this Roanoke Valley who does not know you. Maybe you know who it is. The Lord brought it to your mind instantly. Right now, pray for that person. Pray for boldness. Pray for a compassionate heart that sees them and wants to help them. So do everything it takes. Pray that you'll be committed to helping that individual know and meet Jesus. Pray for opportunities right now that this week you can continue that relationship with them. Pray that God will work and stir in your heart right now. and He'll give you a heart that just looks upon people and loves them enough to share your faith. Pray that he'll give you a heart that has this 
do-whatever-it-takes mentality. I'm not going to give up. No matter how hard the situation may be, no matter what the obstacles may be, no matter what's in front of me that looks impossible, that you'll just be, that you'll just, be just like those four friends. And you'll do whatever it takes. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for our time together. And I pray right now over this room, I pray that we get to a place in here because we're so invested in reaching people for Jesus that we have to do the exact same thing that those friends had to do, that we can't fit any more people in here, so we've got to rip a roof off. May that be true at this church. May we have people that are hungry to deepen a relationship with you, but also to reach lost people for the sake of the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.